0: Let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Josher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, (coughs) the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their deaths they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, thus far... The author has defended David, just like he did at the end, especially of First Samuel. And here he makes it abundantly clear that David had nothing to do with Saul's death. He was at least 100 miles away. He also explains how David ended up with Saul's crown and this kingly armband. And simply, the Samalakite brought them to David. He also demonstrates uh, that David's reaction to Saul was not with rejoicing, but with mourning. And so first of all, we see David is mourning. Uh, he is leading everyone in mourning for the rest of the day, as soon as they heard the news. And so they fasted, they tore clothes, probably there was wailing and tears, and certainly there were would have been prayers to God. Um <clears throat> But before we continue the theme of mourning, we saw last time at the, the last few verses that David then executes this Amalekite for killing Saul. Whether or not the man lied, irregardless of the fact that Saul would have died soon anyway, David punishes this man for killing uh, the king, for killing the anointed of Israel. And so David was just according to God's civil law, Uh, but also just according to God's special law in regard to the Amalekites. But through it all, uh, David is shown to be worthy. He is the one that should be king. All right, now, uh, the author has one more thing to say about David's response to Saul's death, and that's what we see here now at the rest of the chapter. Notice that David did not rejoice. He mourned, but he didn't also just mourn for a few hours, He wrote this lament so that all Israel would mourn. Not only did they fast for the day, but now they're going to sing this dirge for years to come, basically. And so you could put it this way. David mourned immediately, but he also is going to mourn perpetually. So let's look at this here then. First verse 17. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Well, first of all, this is a very Hebrew way of saying things. You have the verb and you have the noun together. So he lamented a lamentation, or you could say he sang a dirge or something to that effect. Um, And basically, this is a formal grief, you could say. It's written, it would be read, it would be sung, it was measured, it wasn't just a reaction. Verses 11 and 12, this is the immediate reaction of David. Well, now he wrote it down. And it wasn't just for the people who were there, but now for everyone, including us. And so note the the difference in that way. Now, as we bring in verse 18, it says, And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Joshua. All right, now there's a number of things here for us to cover uh, before we look at the song itself. Uh, First of all, um, we see here then that uh, all Israel was to learn this. Uh, They were to memorize it. They were to repeat it. They were to sing it not just uh, once, but uh, on a repeated basis. Um, And so likely then every individual learned it. Maybe they sang it on the street corners, the tabernacle choir put it to music and sang it and so on. Um, and if he were living today, surely it would have been played on the radio. Maybe they would have made T-shirts with how might the mighty have fallen on the front and a bow and arrow on the back or something to that effect. Simply, Saul is being memorialized. Jonathan and his life and death are memorialized. Obviously, it's done here, but we are told it was also done in the book of Joshua. Now let's turn just a moment to uh, Joshua chapter 10. Um, there is one other place in the scriptures that make mention of this book. And uh, uh, in chapter 10, remember, this is uh, when Joshua's leading uh, Israel against the Canaanite armies and so forth. And uh, notice that especially down in verses 12 and following, we see about... Uh, the Amorites and the sun standing still uh, there over Gibeon and and so on and at the end of verse 13 uh, it says is this not written in the book of Joshua assumed answer yes so the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and and so forth right so this event in Joshua is written down in the same book as now this song so um, that teaches us a few things uh, obviously, it says it was recorded there, but do you see that there were other books uh, besides the scriptures uh, that um, recorded different events in the life of Israel? Um, and so, first of all, notice that even in a culture that was largely oral, there were written things. And this is, of course, very significant for the development of culture, uh, the development of language, and so on and so forth. And so we see here there are other written sources besides the Old Testament. Uh, They weren't just an oral culture. They were a written culture uh, in certain ways. And so there were things outside of the scriptures. And yet, this is what God wants us to know. If we were ever to find the book of Joshua, that would be incredibly interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, But this has the authority. Anything in the book of Joshua that is the same as the Old Testament, we would say, okay, this has authority. But something that may be different, we would use it for historical purposes, not for authority purposes like we do the scriptures. Um, so anyway, just a, a brief comment in that way. Um, and then this, um, the informal, you might say, the momentary grief of verses 11 and 12 now transitions Here. Possibly David wrote this song during the afternoon of his fasting and wailing and weeping and so forth of that particular day. Maybe he wrote it later, a week later, or something to that effect. We don't know. Um, But David is communicating, and thus the author is communicating here, that David did not just show grief for a brief period of time, but he spent hours perfecting grief you could say. And so notice what this um, would instruct us to do in the time of loss. Uh, Many of us here, of course, have lost loved ones, and there's an immediate grief, isn't there? But then there's more of a measured grief, a long-term grief, if you will, something that we think about for days and weeks and months to come. And and here we see uh, this song is, is, is designed to do that. Uh, in our culture, we um, it's okay to momentary grieve, momentarily grieve, but we don't really emphasize the ongoing grief. Other than to say, you know, we understand that it takes time and so forth to deal with those things. Um, but here we see it in this way. Now, as, as uh, we read through this lament, some people have tried to make the case that this is the best lament ever to be written. We do have laments outside of the scriptures uh, from the ancient world. We have laments in other parts of the scriptures, like in the Psalms, and some will, will rank this one as first. And uh, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but it certainly is, is uh, very well done. So through uh, these things then, again, we see that the author is proclaiming that David is not glad that his enemy is dead. He is not rejoicing that Saul is gone, but um, he is mourning. All right, now, um, let me uh, point out this. It says here that the, the children of Judah were to sing this. Uh, This is likely the case initially, that initially the sons of Judah would sing because obviously that's where David begins to rule as king. But uh, note verse 19 talks about the beauty of Israel, and in verse 24 it talks about the daughters of Israel, and of course we have this recorded for us. And so David is acting as king, not just over Judah, but over all Israel. He's beginning to do that, even though the people didn't accept it right away, at least not all of them. And so this uh, song here is for everybody, and uh, certainly something we could even uh, use to, uh, to guide us. All right, now, obviously, as I said last week and I've said so far today, the, the emphasis is on Saul. That's how David begins. Uh, but he is also mourning for Jonathan. And so we'll look at that in more detail next time in verses 25 and 26. But notice this description of Jonathan. Uh, here in verse 17, it says, Jonathan, his son. <coughs> Excuse me. If you go back to verse 4, we had the same thing there at, toward the end of the verse. Uh, the man informs him that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead. In the next verse, how do you know that jo- Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? And then also down in verse 12, they fasted for Saul and for Jonathan his son. What? We, we all know that Jonathan is Saul's son. Why is it said four times here in these verses? Well, I think there's probably two things here. First of all, Jonathan was supposed to be heir to the throne until Saul sinned it away. God said no, but here Jonathan, uh, his son, is highlighting the fact that now David is king, not Jonathan, and so it seems like that's part of what's going on. Even though Saul refused to accept it, Jonathan did accept it. You remember from 1 Samuel, and he even promised David that he would never try to claim the throne. And so Saul's line is over. And so this repeated description of Jonathan reminds us of these things. And as we turn to chapter 2, we're going to um, uh, see the point that not everybody, including Saul, accepted it. And we'll see that with Ishbosheth. Um, the other thing may also point us to why Uh, the song receives its particular title. Um, uh, Notice here, verse 18, the New King James says, the song of the bow, uh, but the song of is in italics. Uh, That's because the Hebrew is a bit awkward here. Uh, It doesn't specifically say the song of, it just says the bow. Uh, But most likely, we should take this to mean the the name of the lament. And so why this title? Well... Even though David is lamenting for Saul, he's especially lamenting for Saul's son, Jonathan. If you look at verse 22, uh, notice in the third line it says, The bow of Jonathan did not turn back. Um, If you turn back a moment to 1 Samuel in chapter 18, um, you recall that just after David killed Goliath, and everybody's rejoicing and so forth. In chapter 18, verse 1, uh, we see about the soul of Jonathan being knit to David. Uh, verse 2, uh, Saul wouldn't let David go home. he stayed stay there with Saul. Verse 3, they made a covenant, Jonathan and David. And then in verse 4, Jonathan took off the robe <coughs> that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And you may recall that When we went over that, that isn't just, you know, a nice present or something. But this is Jonathan's way of saying, I'm not going to be the next king. I am giving this to you. And so right from the beginning, we see this regarding Jonathan. He had an idea that David would be the next king. And certainly over time, that idea became much more clear. But with the reference here to Jonathan and his bow in chapter 18 and the things that we see uh, even here in the song itself, uh, that's likely why it uh, received the name. You remember also one more thing that in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when David was trying to discern the, the heart of Saul, and remember Saul got all upset and so forth, and so Jonathan went and shot his bow, and the arrow went beyond, and this said for David to run. And so this is probably... Uh, Why it received its name is because as much as David grieved for Jonathan, or excuse me, for Saul, it was Jonathan especially that uh, caused him to mourn. All right, and now another point here to to mention by way of uh, introduction to the psalm. Um, Some people have tried to make the case that David is not being genuine in his mourning that this was all for political purposes and so on, and these would be the same kind of people that would say his killing of the Amalekite was unjust and so on. Um, I think we have to say that David was being political to some degree. A political message of grief over the death of his rival was what David wanted to communicate. I think that's true. Because by grieving over the death of his rival, we see that David's actually the good guy. He is not doing it uh, without sincerity, but it is a message to send, and the author is trying to do that. And by communicating these things, it will help unite all Israel under one man, and, of course, in this case, David. It also should be seen as genuine because of how much David cared for Jonathan. Yes, his king is dead. Yes, his father-in-law is dead. But Jonathan is dead. So I think we have to see these words as genuine on David's part. Um, Note also how having a song like this would be motivational for Israel. Now, I'll bring this out a bit more as we get into chapters 2 and following. Um, But the Philistines at this point were now controlling a fair amount of Israel. we, we, We don't want to just simply see that the Philistines were a border skirmish or something like that. They had made their way a fair ways into the interior in order to kill Saul. Well, they maintained that control for a period of time. And so you have the Philistines in the land, you have the king dead, you have all this upset in the land. And so to have a lament like this in the nation would certainly embolden Israel to action. And so it is likely the case That when the soldiers were practicing, when they were shooting their bow at the target uh, in preparation for more battle, they probably were singing this dirge. When Israel uh, was led into battle by David now against the Philistines, as we'll see, and against others, they probably were singing this as they were marching on the enemy. As they were sitting around the campfires there between the battles, they probably were singing this. The death of the kingly line surely would have brought motivation for the fight. And, you know, every culture has done this over the course of history in one way or another. Ours has done it. Uh, Obviously, we have songs that we have sung over the centuries. When we think about the Revolutionary War or even the Civil War or other things like that, we have patriotic songs for America that have been sung of course, we think of Frank Francis Scott Key, the Star Spangled Banner, and things like that. Um, and since we just remembered 9-11 here the other day, uh, you recall that at, at that point then, the song God Bless America became kind of the song for America. I still remember watching the Yankees win and playing all the time in the playoffs and Some of you may remember that big portly guy that all of a sudden was belting out, God bless America, uh, every time during the seventh inning stretch. Um, And so we do the same kinds of things. In fact, uh, all kinds of musicians came out with songs after 9-11. Alicia Keys, J.C., other pop, other country music wrote songs uh, about it. Some of them received Grammys. Probably the most well-known for us is Lee Greenwood's, God bless the USA. Um, And so, you know, what David is doing here is not all that unique. And we've experienced the same kind of thing. And it, it helps us to grieve. It helps us to move on. It helps spur us to action. It helps unite us together. So with these variety of things in mind, from verses 17 and 18... Let's now come to the lament itself, and let's uh, begin it here this evening. And um, if you look at the handout that I have given to you here from the Psalm, um, if you look on the back, you'll see, first of all, the broader structure. And uh, you'll see that uh, I've done this just like I've done with the Psalms, because this is, in essence, a Psalm. And as I've done, I have given to you uh, the Hebrew, um, and for those of you who are interested in the Hebrew, you can look at it. Uh, for those of you who aren't, that's fine. Um, I've given to you my translation again to try to bring out uh, some of the nuances of the language and also to highlight the flow of thought. I've tried to point out some of the poetic elements and and so on here for you too. Now let me read before we look at the structure. Let me read this here. This is from Joyce Baldwin. And this is her paragraph right before the, the song itself. She says, All poetry is best appreciated in its original language. And the subtleties of Hebrew make this especially true of Old Testament poems, which rely for much of their effect on assonance, brevity, and wordplay. Okay? And so the wordplay would be your parallelism, Uh, Brevity, many times, there are fewer words in Hebrew than in English, and even just in a regular Hebrew sentence or verse. Uh, And then, of course, the assonance, that would be the, the sounds that you see in the language. And she says this, Since none of these can be reproduced in another language, that may be a bit strong, since most of these things, maybe, cannot be reproduced in another language, some technical explanation is unavoidable, if the force of the Hebrew is to be appreciated. And that's that idea is what has motivated me in terms of doing this for the Psalms and now doing this here. Um, and so this way, we can look at the words in a, in a uh, more thorough way and not just look at the ideas, which is what so often happens when we translate from one language to another in, in its poetry. Um So, anyway, with that uh, briefly in mind, let's now look at the structure. And you'll see that the first outline, uh, you have verses 19 and 27 going together. You see the opening and then closing lament. We have this refrain. Uh, And then in the middle, we see first uh, verses 20 and 21 uh, go together, and then 22 to 24, the blessings of these two men. And then we see the lament. Uh, I think this is probably the best way to subdivide it, and that's the way I'm going to follow it. Uh, in the next one, you'll see that there's a chiasm, and this is Dr. Davis's observation. And he says that verses 22 and 23 should be our our primary focal point because that's what's in the middle. You see also how he puts verse 24 in a different place. Um, and, and I think there's uh, some important... Uh, Information in, in, in that way. But I do think that putting it with verses 22 and 23 probably is, is a little bit better. But anyway, here's a, a couple ways of, of looking at it. And as I've said before, take this home, read this song, and, and uh, learn a little more from it on your own. We only have so much time together. Um, all right, now, as you look below these outlines the most obvious and significant observation is that God is not mentioned at all in this lament we didn't see that once in any of the Psalms that we've looked at Um, but God's not mentioned not any of his names not even a pronoun referring to Him. this is very striking Some people have said this suggests to us that the song was written right away, possibly during that afternoon when David was mourning and fasting and so on. Um, And, okay, maybe that's the case. I'm not sure it demands that, but in the emotion of the moment, maybe that is true. But I would then say this, for those who claim that this is the best lament ever written, I would say, well, how can it be if God's not mentioned? It's very well done, but if God is not mentioned, I'm not sure we could put it at the top of the list. Okay. Now, one more observation here in, in terms of uh, uh, what I have here for you, and that is David only refers to himself in verse 26. These four different times, as the only time he mentions himself. Uh, the rest has to do with Saul, Jonathan, and others. All right, now, um, if you look at verse 19, notice we have this refrain, how mighty ones have fallen. And then if you look down at verse 25, we see it again, but in the context of a uh, longer clause. And then in verse 27, we see it for a third time, how the mighty ones have fallen. And so this is his primary emphasis. Um, All right, well, uh, a lot to uh, do here to prepare the way for it. So let's look then tonight here at verse 19. And it says, The beauty, O Israel, reading my translation here, the beauty, O Israel, upon your high places is pierced. How mighty ones have fallen. All right, now you see initially that this is a little different from the New King James. The New King James says, the beauty of Israel. And uh, the way the, the Greek word, or sorry, the Hebrew word is presented to us here, I think it's better for us to understand it as an address, okay? Oh, Israel. And so if you have another translation, you that's probably what you have. Um, and so Israel's mighty leaders have been pierced. They have fallen here, and so uh, David is addressing the nation again. Fitting if everybody's going to see it, uh, sing it. All right. Now the next thing to to talk about briefly is this word beauty. <clears throat> if you have another translation, you might have the word glory or something uh, like that. Uh, clearly, this is referring to these mighty ones, uh, to Saul and to Jonathan. Um, but first of all, notice that it's singular. The beauty, singular, is pierced. And so it is, I think we need to understand that David is speaking of Saul at this point. Okay, if you look down at verse 25, we see um, the same thing here. Jonathan upon your high places is pierced. Okay, so if he specifies Jonathan in verse 25, it Suggests to us, and at least, that David is referring to Saul here in verse 19. Um, and so I think that's how we need to, um, to see it. Um, now, one more thing in regard to this word. Um, if anybody happens to have the NIV, it does not have beauty. It does not have glory. It has the word gazelle, like the animal. Okay. If you look briefly at chapter 2, verse 18, uh, chapter 2, 18 says at the end of the verse, Asahel was as fleet a foot as a wild gazelle. All right, so <clears throat> the words are, are very much the same in the Hebrew. So which one is it? Well, some have tried to argue that we should uh, understand this as gazelle, and that's, of course, what the NIV does. Um, and if that's the case, it seems to communicate that uh, this is referring to the master of the rugged hills or something like that. This glorious animal that can scale up and down the mountains. Well, he is now dead. And so Saul here is is likened to a gazelle, this wonderful animal, but now it is dead. Um, I'm not convinced, but at least you can still see why it would make sense uh, if this would be the translation. I think it makes better sense to translate it as beauty or glory, um, <clears throat> but the overall point is is very much the same. And so notice here David then would be saying that Saul was beautiful, that Saul was glorious as king. He's anointed and set apart by God. You might say he's kind of like an ornament, a glorious decoration. On the tree of Israel, beautifying the nation. Now he is pierced. On the high places, obviously this would refer to Mount Gilboa, uh, the main peak along with its various peaks. Um, And so Saul and obviously Jonathan as well, uh, they were pierced there by the arrows of the Philistines. Uh, Saul also was pierced by his own sword and... If the Amalekite story is true, he was also pierced with that sword. Um, But notice how David begins um, with this idea, referring to the event itself, referring back to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. The beauty was pierced. The glorious king was, was shot with an arrow and stabbed with a sword. And so he's referring us back to the event. Uh, in this opening line which brings us then to the refrain Um, and again this is the key for this lament Uh, the mighty ones or um, just simply mighty ones the king certainly and his son but remember it wasn't just Jonathan that died on the mountain with Saul the other two sons of Saul died too uh, we will see Ishbosheth survives, but the other two Saul, uh, sons of Saul died. Certainly, uh, many Israelites died on the mountain. And so this is why we have mighty ones, plural. If the first line is referring to Saul specifically, this line clearly expands it to everyone uh, who died. And so in that, uh, with that in mind, not only was Saul beautiful, but so too was Jonathan. Not only were they glorious for Israel, but even the family of Saul and even Israel in general. They were beautiful and um, uh, were pierced. Um, All right, so David here then is calling on Israel to lament their death. And in this refrain, you see it's only three words in length as you look at the the Hebrew there. It's uh, kind of short and sweet, you could say. It's brief, it's pointed, and it captures the horror of the situation. Um, Now, uh, let's step back here a moment and think about it like this. When mighty ones are on high places, usually they have the advantage, don't they? And we often hear people say, well, if you have the high ground, you have the advantage over your enemy. And so this is why, right, castles were built on the tops of of hills or mountains and walls were put around and so forth. If you have the high ground, you can defeat an enemy trying to come up the hillside because you can shoot down on them or throw rocks down on them or, you know, whatever it was. And yet, these mighty men were on the high places, um, seemingly out of reach of the chariots. Remember how? The Philistines were well known for their chariots. And so they can't go up the high places. They could go up a certain amount, but they can't go up as far as, as uh, uh, the top. And so you would think then that Israel would have success, right? That Saul would be victorious. That he wouldn't die, that Jonathan wouldn't die on the high, high ground, the high places. But of course, what happened was a complete disaster. And the fact that David words it this way, I think, is a subtle way of indicating this point. This is so um, grievous, not only that the king died, not only that Jonathan died, but they died in a way that really they should have won because they were on the high places of Mount Gilboa. They were not down in the valley where the chariots could have such an advantage. Now, David certainly does not expand on this. David does not refer to the sin of Saul here in this lament. But in this opening line, we are reminded certainly of 1 Samuel chapter 31. And 1 Samuel chapter 31 followed all of those things that led up to it which certainly taught us that the reason why Saul fell is because of his sin. And so with that in mind, let's refresh our memory on Saul's sin here just briefly, and I think this will help segue us into chapter 2 as well. So let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13. You may remember that chapters 8 to 12 go together. And so the first chapter outside of that grouping talks about Saul's sin. And uh, you recall that he was uh, called to fight here against the Philistines. Remember, Jonathan had attacked them, and the Philistines came up and such with all these, these men. And everybody was afraid. And Samuel had told Saul, You wait till I come, I'll offer a sacrifice, and then we'll go into battle. Remember, Samuel was delayed. And so Saul took matters into his own hands. And so in verse 14, remember these words. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. As because of Saul's sin, he could no longer be king. Okay? But in particular, it's his kingdom that will not continue in this, in this uh, particular verse. In other words, there would be no son of Saul on the throne. And so Jonathan or any of the other sons of Saul would not be king. Okay? And that someone else, of course, is David. And then if you turn over to uh, chapter 14, of course, you see Saul's sin there with preventing people from eating and so on. And then in chapter 15, This is where David, or excuse me, when uh, 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 God told Saul to kill the Amalekites, and he didn't do it completely. He spared the king, and so on. And if you look at verse 23, uh, Samuel speaking, For the rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as an iniquity, And idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So we go from the kingdom now to the king himself. And so Saul's like, oh, no, no, you know, I've sinned and so forth. And so forgive me and so on. In verse 26, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Remember, Saul grasps on to Samuel and tears his robe. And so verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <clears throat> and so at this point, <clears throat> not only would there be no descendant of Saul on the throne, but now Saul is rejected as king. Add to this how he went to the necromancer, <clears throat> killed the priest at Nob, chased down David, Uh, Saul, in the place of advantage, on the high place, away from the chariots, he died. And so these are the sins, and this is why the mighty fell at the place of advantage and safety. God finally brought about these promises of judgment. Now, I know I'm adding to the lament here, but this Can you say, adds to the lament? (laughs) Not only is Israel grieving the loss of their king, but they're grieving the loss of their king because it really didn't have to be this way. It was because of Saul's sin that all this awful uh, situation took place. It should have been that Saul had transferred the uh, authority over to David, or if you go back another step, it should have been that Saul should have been blessed to the very end, but he wasn't. Okay? and so this is a great grief when we think about uh, the sin of 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 Saul okay? <clears throat> all right now, um, let me step back then from this emphasis on sin, and as I said a moment ago, this will help us to transition to chapter 2 and remind us uh, of these truths. But uh, let me step back here in this way. Um, this still is, for all of Saul's failures, he still was the king. He still was the one that God had placed there. And now the leader of Israel was dead. Okay. Now, we've been a nation long enough that we've had our own leaders die too. And we think of course of Lincoln, you think of Kennedy or even Garfield or McKinley. uh, It's a big deal for a nation when the leader dies. Now in ours, of course, we have separation of power and we've had a number of people who have died in office as senators and representatives and and so on too. Uh, It's a grief to a nation when its leaders die even if that leader is not such a great leader like Saul, if Biden were to finally keel over and they can't prop him up anymore and so forth, you know, that's still a grief to our nation. And, uh, and so this is the context. Let's apply it more uh, locally. If we think of uh, our elders dying, and of course since I've been here, uh, John Voga has passed away. Uh, Bill Van Dyke has passed away. Right? When we think of our our elders, our leaders dying, this is a great grief to a church. When uh, our uh, parents or grandparents pass away, certainly this is great grief. Um, I'm sure Stan, you guys are missing your dad, especially today. You know, it's a great grief when these things happen. And so, when um, we come to this. Let's have all the background of Saul in mind and all of his sin and all of his mess. But let's also learn here about grieving. Death, sin, judgment, all of it is not good. It's not according to a God intended for us from the beginning. And so when we grieve, okay, let's, if you will, add to this lament the idea that our only hope is in God. Our only hope in the face of loss and sorrow is God's grace, trusting in God's plan, trusting him as we grieve. So um, anyway, so, you know, Stan, I mentioned your dad, obviously, Darlene, your mother. And I've I've thought that so many times with, with my mom, wishing she were still here or my grandparents or whatever it is. Um, and so <clears throat> we're just starting on this. But may um, we apply these thoughts of David in our own grief uh, here today. So um, <clears throat> I'm stopping right in the middle of everything here. And uh, um, in order to uh, not make this too excessive tonight, we'll, we'll pick up with uh, verse 20 next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we <clears throat> um, are thankful for... For your mercies uh, to your people, uh, we are thankful, Lord, that uh, though death is a part of life, and though sin is um, something that dominates our existence and the effects of it, um, we are thankful that uh, even in our grief, even in our sorrow, even when leaders die, people close to us die, uh, we are thankful, Lord, that that. Um, You are our hope and our strength. Uh, We uh, pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, give us this encouragement and give us this confidence. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, again, um, uh, help us in our understanding of your word and uh, that we might uh, give you honor uh, even in death, even in grief, even in sorrow. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name.